Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now on with the show. I spent the last weekend of May at a conference in Stockholm called the New Shape Forum. This was an ideas festival and prize competition and workshop all around new ideas for better organizing the world to confront catastrophic global risks. The Global Challenges Foundation, which convened this forum and is also a sponsor of this podcast, solicited new ideas for global governance and received several thousands of ideas from all over the world. Of these submissions, 14 finalists were selected to present their ideas at the New Shape Forum. And then those of us invited to the conference all got down to work. We identified the ideas we thought we could help refine and spent two days building upon them. At the end of the conference, three of those 14 ideas were selected as winners, and the winning ideas got a $600,000 prize each. My guest today, Natalie Samarsinga, is one of those winners. She is the executive director of the United Nations Association of the United Kingdom, though she wants to stress that this episode was recorded in her personal capacity, as was the idea she submitted. Natalie came up with a proposal for a novel kind of UN reform. Now, this is not a reform of the Security Council or of the General Assembly. Rather, it is a proposal for how UN agencies can better design and implement programs and projects around the world. You can find her proposal as well as the other two winning ideas and all the 14 finalists at globalchallenges.org. And as I mentioned earlier, this episode is presented by the Global Challenges Foundation, which recently convened that New Shape Forum in Stockholm. This was a platform where over 200 leading thinkers and experts discussed fresh ideas for improving global governance to tackle the world's most pressing problems. Next, the Global Challenges Foundation is partnering with the Paris Peace Forum in November to present further developed and more holistic ideas for confronting global catastrophic risks. Visit globalchallenges.org to learn more. And I think you'll get from the enthusiasm I had in my conversation with Natalie that this was a really invigorating and inspiring process. I was so glad to be a part of, and I look forward to bringing you more from the Global Challenges Foundation and more big ideas for confronting big global risks in future episodes. And now here is my conversation with Natalie Samarsinga. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
So first, congratulations. I was so glad that your idea was one of the winners. Thank you. I uh, was actually filled with trepidation. This is something I was have been brewing for uh, a good sort of decade or so. It's based on my university thesis, and it seemed really out there at the time. And it's nice to feel that in some ways maybe the world has caught up a little bit. <laughs> so, so maybe we can just kind of set the the scene a little bit about what went down in Stockholm the other week. Um, so there were a, a group of fourteen finalists that were selected for the New Shape Forum Prize. This is an idea of reinventing or thinking of new ideas in global governance to confront catastrophic global risks that the Global Challenges Foundation uh, organized and, and, and put on. And you were among the 14 finalists invited to present your ideas. But not only, and this is what I found really interesting, not only were your and the other finalists' ideas presented, but there were, what, you'd say like maybe 150 of us that were invited to participate in like workshopping the ideas. Mm -hmm. um, there's a good number of us, and I was very, very fortunate to uh, join your workshop and help you develop your idea, which is why I am so thrilled that, that you are, are one of the finalists. No, it was a, a, a fantastic experience. And I have to admit, I wasn't entirely sure uh, what to expect. So we knew we had to present our ideas uh, publicly and to the jury. But in terms of the workshop, that was a real attraction for me, the chance to engage not with the usual suspects. You know, you go to a UN reform conference and you can probably, you know, you kind of know that the, the top to 20, 30 participants are going to be there, probably heard of all the others. And this was really exciting. I met people who work in finance and design and advertising, NGOs I'd never heard of. So it was hugely interesting to see that there's this broader global governance community out there. And I think that's what the, the forum really did uh, in terms of a legacy for me, was to put us all in touch and to get us thinking in different ways about how we approach a, a debate that can often feel very stale when you're looking at it from the narrow UN perspective. And, you know, just to maybe uh, set the scene some more. So, you know, all of these ideas and the different and, and diverse uh, group of individuals that were um, invited to participate in in these workshops, uh, we all kind of sat around a table for a few days and just sort of built upon your idea and, and, and the other individuals <laughs> ideas as well. And um, the, I don't know, the, I found the process like very empowering. I, I'd never been a part of a process like that. They even had like, instead of like even regular note takers, they had artists that were like depicting ideas, <laughs> which is something, you know, I initially thought was a little kind of like new agey and out there. But actually, it, what I found actually the, the most intriguing and and we'll get into the substance of of your idea in a second but to me after i heard your presentation uh when you kind of gave it in front of everyone and before we got to 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 the workshop part the big question in my mind was like process how do we go from your from the starting point in the world we are where we are now to your end point and honestly it wasn't until we the artists started helping us con visually conceptualize it um, with, with like the donut metaphor that, that we used on paper that I really started to see how your idea could actually become a, a reality. So again, I just was like very kind of blown away and it de really defied my, my expectations. I think I had the same initial sort of 
I dare I say skepticism that you have. You know, I, I initially read about the the, the competition's challenge to you know redesign global governance in a way that makes it better, but it has to be you know innovative, but also realistic and implementable. You know, it just seemed like this impossible task. And my knee jerk reaction was, should I just send in the you know a copy of the UN Charter Mark 2.0 because that's all that's possible? But what this process has really shown me is that we need a lot more creativity and the confidence to to use different methods be it sort of you know an, an artist or just getting different people in a room and making us all feel a little bit uncomfortable and taking us outside our comfort zones because I think we really reap the the, the benefits uh, from that so you know the workshop experience was really collaborative I mean for me brilliant to have you know experts from so many different fields really get to grips and you know tear apart the idea but crucially just say how can we make this happen and it started to feel a lot more real I think I, I had exactly the same experience in that sense it started to feel like we can do this and it's really taught me a lot in terms of how to design these kinds of events in the future, how to approach pro problems like this, but also just it's given me a new sense of optimism that actually we can make things happen. It didn't feel like such a you know insurmountable task as it did at the beginning of the process when you know I was sat down typing something to be you know sent off into the ether as it were. So let's let's talk about your idea. Um, what is it? Uh, describe it. Where where the origins of your idea come from? You said it was originally a, a, a thesis for university. So, so talk about that process of, of coming up with this idea. Yes. So the initial idea was something I did as part of my master's dissertation at the London School of Economics, and it was human rights uh, master's, but I was really keen to focus on global development, um, you know, really as something that sort of underpins everything we do on the on the human rights agenda as well. And crucially, to look at where are the gaps in accountability at the moment Um and it, they come from the fact that the landscape is changing and it's changed a lot since then. This is going back, you know, nearly 15 years in terms of the number of actors engaged in delivering global goods and in, in engaged in working on the kind of issues where the UN used to be the only player on the scene and it now isn't. So there, you know, that's businesses, that's NGOs, universities, foundations that are all shaping this landscape. Uh, without the the oversight and the structures in place that we have at the UN, but also with capacity and resources that the UN doesn't have. So this was just a way of looking at how to manage that transition uh, and, and get a little bit more, you know, uh, inclusion, because I think, you know, inclusion is a good end in itself. We talk about the importance of having stakeholders at the table. Uh, but I also look at it from a risk perspective. I think exclusion is, is a huge risk, whether that's people feeling alienated from the structures, uh, you know, from their own government, from these corporations that they don't really understand how they can engage with, but yet they have such a big impact on their lives. So it's a way to manage inclusion and also, insert a little bit more transparency into the system and also a lot more capacity. So that was sort of the first stage. And I've since then spent, you know, a lot of time uh, finding out that, you know, you can have a bold idea when you're young. And I think that's very important. We need to have younger voices uh, working on global governance and, and, and getting a seat at the table in a meaningful way. But I've learned a lot since then about how change happens or rather doesn't happen at the UN. So I approached it quite differently this time. It was really a way of, you know, trying to come up with a new approach to managing these very stale and quite frankly unproductive debates on Security Council reform and looking at how to 
maybe be innovative and transformative in a way that goes beyond the very creative and good ideas we have on, say, an elected General Assembly or standing UN Army, which have been out there for a while and which are very good. And I think if we had a blank sheet, these are the ideas we might come up with. But we don't have a blank sheet. So there's a way to think about circumventing politics on the hardest of issues uh, and trying to build on my experience of the one for seven billion campaign and other UN reform issues and look at how do things get done. And in my experience, they get done through a coalition of actors. They get done when you use existing mechanisms and processes, you build on best practice, you avoid charter reform, and you really try and look at what's already happening in the world and how can we just take that a few steps further to try and catalyze bigger change. So let, let me stop you there because uh, your experience as, your, as one of the leaders of the One for Seven Billion campaign, I think is, is instructive here. Can you just sort of, for people who are unaware of what that campaign was, just briefly describe uh, you know how you went about uh, conducting that campaign, which was in the end very successful, I think. So the campaign was really formed on a you know simple idea. How do you shortcut improving uh, you know the UN system? And we thought leadership is the answer. You can have the best reforms in the world if you don't have good leadership. You know, you're, everything you try to do is going to be much 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 harder to achieve. And you have a secretary general selection process, or rather, you had a process that had largely been unchanged uh, since the UN's inception, and effectively put uh, you know the decision uh, of of who to appoint a decision that could, you know, theoretically and in practice affect 7 billion people in the world uh, into the hands of the, the, the five permanent members of the Security Council. And, you know, it was pretty much the most appalling process that you could think of. Totally people opaque. Think, you know, totally, it was totally opaque, yeah. yeah. Even other states in the Security Council might not know which, you know, candidates were in the running. There's no timetable. There was nothing like a job description, no chance for the candidates to engage with the wider UN membership. So these are all the things that we, we we called for and it was really you know in, interesting process because you know a lot of states had been saying they supported change of the process everyone was in favor of it but no one had actually tried to turn that into sort of concrete implementable proposals and once we started working and we had you know lots of partners in this on putting together what are some of the achievable things we can do avoiding charter reform because that gets just you know way too complex and that's not going to happen and um, we found that actually there were you know a good two-thirds of UN member states who were already on site we then tried to build relationships with key individuals the presidents of the general assembly uh, for us in the UK it was you know the the, the new UK permanent representative to the UN and really say, you know, this is an opportunity for the UN to show that it can change, uh, you know, a, a, an opportunity to have the UN covered in the papers, not for a scandal. Uh, and we found there was actually quite a groundswell of, of support. Also, to our surprise, we found that the public were interested. We never thought they'd care about a UN recruitment process. But I think everyone, you know, likes an election campaign. It was a chance to put a face, you know, or many faces, as it were, uh, uh, to this sort of faceless big organization. And we built um, a really big coalition of about 200 million supporters, uh, over 200 NGOs, and got quite a lot of those basic process reforms that we wanted. Mm -hmm. I think the most important was opening it up to, to uh, the process to uh, have debate in the General Assembly that were webcast. Uh, you know, so it really was an opportunity for the world to engage with these candidates. And, and it was totally transformative. Uh, 
in terms of how it used to happen. You know, there was like an open process. You know, you, you had civil society be able to ask, um, and every country of the General Assembly be, be able to ask the candidates for Secretary General, Secretary General questions, and it, it really did open up the process in, in a big way. And um, it's your success with that that, again, leads me um, – or gives me some some hope that the idea that you presented that we worked on together actually ha- has a chance of of being implemented. So let, let's talk about the uh, idea in a bit more detail. Um, essentially, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, your idea is to sort of approach UN reform, not in terms of like Security Council reform or how the General Assembly operates, but rather how the UN agencies are able to deliver services to people on the ground in the need or, or tackle sort of various global problems. It's basically not the talk part of the UN that you're trying to reform, but the do part of the UN. Um, so what, what are elements of, of the, your, your reform uh, agenda and of your idea that sort of advance this goal? Sure. So there are actually two uh, transformations, which, you know, whenever I've presented them sound really simple, but I think anyone who's worked at the UN <laughs> knows that there's, there's quite a lot but, but behind uh, making those, uh, trying to make those happen. So the first transformation is quite simply opening up the formal decision-making uh, processes in UN funds programs and agencies. So we're talking to, about like UNICEF or the World Food Program or the World Health Organization, things like exactly. that, UN AIDS. We're not talking about the Security Council or the General Assembly. Exactly. So uh, it's, it's opening up these bodies that already work with NGOs and businesses in a variety of ways, but which don't have them really, for the most part, included in their formal structures, uh, to, to have them sit alongside states as, as, as members of, of, of those bodies. Um, this would improve their decision making. Uh, it would uh, help get you know different perspectives and, and, and uh, tackling different, uh, uh, tackling the issues that they face. And it would also hopefully improve resourcing uh, for the UN through the introduction of some uh, membership fees. And then the second part is really transferring some of the UN's tasks to those stakeholders, specifically those tasks that other stakeholders can do better, often are already doing, but which still take up the majority of the UN's time and money, about 75% of the UN's uh, resources and two thirds of its staff capacity are spent on what is broadly termed as development tasks and often involve some relatively basic uh, delivery tasks on the ground. And really say, you know, if others can do that better, why not let them do that? That then frees up the UN's time to focus on the things that it does best that only it can do mediation, peacekeeping in some you know circumstances, some of its human rights work. Uh, so it's sort of strengthening the system as a whole. And you know, I'm not just saying let's leave the talk part of the UN to get on with it, but it's a recognition that politics is always going to, quite frankly, be political, and you need to have those those forums there for discussion, be that the General Assembly or in the hardest issues, the Security Council. But by strengthening the work of the rest of the UN system, you are beefing up the UN's preventive capacity. So hopefully, what actually goes to the agenda of the Security Council and the General Assembly is is is, is less. Mm-hmm. And and. Uh... Again, sort of one way that I think this is politically feasible, while of course still difficult, is that it sort of aligns with the Secretary General's kind of renewed focus on prevention. Uh, and, and, um, it sort of can fall under the rubric of, of prevention, which is something that would make it more politically appetizing, I think, to sort of 
current stakeholders of, of the, the UN system? Absolutely. I mean, the idea is to try and incentivize this change in a number of ways. So I think it fits very well with the Secretary General's agenda. I think it fits very well with lots of current practices that are happening in lots of agencies, uh, from UNAIDS to um, the ITU, the Telecommunications Union, uh, you know, to the International Labour Organization. There's lots of good practice examples of how stakeholders are working better with the UN. But, you know, in typical UN fashion, it's, it's very piecemeal. Uh, it's quite ad hoc. This is a way of, of formalizing it. And hopefully the incentives for states are that they get some support on the resourcing side. They get to share the burden and the risks of policymaking. The incentives for businesses are that they have a seat in shaping the regulatory environment that they're going to be part of. They have a chance to take on some work. And similarly for NGOs, the chance to not just be relegated to some lovely little side event where they can just sort of do their own NGO thing, but actually have a seat at the formal table and also get some resources and capacity for the work that they are already doing. So in theory, there's incentives, I think, for, for all, all players here. Um, it's just now about creating, you know, a kind of campaign behind, you know, a, a reform push at a time when there's already quite a lot of reform happening. But I think this is something that, you know, we can, we can work on now uh, as it, I think it is, it, it, it is, it, it's something that gets at where the UN could be going. If you look at where the UN might be in 20, 30, 40 years, it's a way of managing that transition to a much more kind of horizontal and vertical structure of power where you've got loads and loads of actors working on something. And, and it's worth pointing out that you know, this idea of like public-private partnerships is something that many parts of the UN are already embracing. Um, what what you're proposing to do is is basically formalize this in in the various agencies and also do it in a more systematic way. So can you maybe like just walk me through an example, you know, five, six, seven years down the road of how you see one of your how how you see this idea being implemented in sort of one specific instance. I think it's easiest to sort of build on what we already have. And you look at the example of UNAIDS, where you have a blended governance structure, where you have states, you have businesses, you have uh, survivors of AIDS, uh, you know, effective communities that are on, uh, you know, around the same table. I think that agency has already been held up as an example for how the sustainable development goals should should be delivered. So can, can you talk uh, about that a little bit? Because I don't think that's something all of my audience will, will, will I think, fully mm. appreciate you know, most, I should say, most of the agencies of the UN, like the World Health Organization, UNICEF, all that, are governed by executive boards or executive committees um, that are composed exclusively of, of member states. Yes. Uh, but so, UNAIDS is not. UNAIDS is the exception. It, it, it's one exception. Um, so they have a mix of, uh, you know, foundations, businesses, uh, states, and affected communities and NGOs, which is really important. So it's not just the sort of NGO gatekeepers that are there. They're actually the, the direct beneficiaries of UNAIDS work are sitting around the table. And that's had a huge influence in terms of the policies around stigmatization that they've developed, the types of conversations about how you work with communities to, to, to have education programs on AIDS, the, the, the engagement of the pharmaceutical sector in this work. So it's really had a transformative effect in the you know the agency's delivery and i think that is something ultimately that 
all stakeholders will be happy about because it gives them the benefits. And you can see an agency like the World Food Programme, you could see the World Health Organization that already has a lot to do with, with both business and, you know, and medical uh, companies. Uh, you could see it going that way and really having better outcomes in terms of predictable funding for, for the work that they're adopting at the policy level, an easier job in terms of selling the policies that are adopted at the UN level to the people and companies and states that are going to have to implement it afterwards. Because what you have now is you might come up with the best framework in the world, you know, in New York or Geneva, and then you get back to your country and you can't really implement it because, oh, business has an objection or the trade union has an objection or whatever it is. So it, you know, that it will lead hopefully to, to, to better decision making and ultimately then delivery as well, because not only do you have you know, member states coming up with the policies, but you have the actual implementers around the table. Um, some of the other examples I would point to are the International Labour Organization, which already has the sort of uh, what's called the tripartite state uh, structure of states, business and, and labour sitting around the table. And there are all sorts of issues with the ILO, they are with every UN agency. But many, many studies have shown that actually the time lag between implementation of decisions is much shorter as a result of, of the, the longer decision-making process because you have all the stakeholders around the table. Um, I, I think I brought this up, but, but uh, one sort of perhaps downside for the UN that I, I sort of foresee in this, or potentially foresee, uh, in the implementation of this idea is that, you know, what you're doing is taking like the UN's brand off the best stuff that the UN does. Um, like, you know, feed starving children, uh, that, you know, that sort of thing. That's no longer, you know, that's no longer like a UN sort of branded enterprise. If the World Food Program is sort of disaggregated and, and, and works as like a, a, a convening partner of a number of implementing, uh, partners. Um, and one, suspects that might lead to broader reputational damage to the UN as a whole and might undermine sort of the UN's political support among key member states. And, and you know, when that political support is eroded, so too might funding. And, and you know, the, the UN is not like an overly funded entity right now. You know, every uh, agency currently struggles with, with funding gaps, you know, between the World Food Program, UNICEF, you know, UN Refugee Agency. And I'm, I'm wondering... Um, if you agree that that reputational damage, the potential for reputational damage is there and how you might sort of avoid sort of negative outcomes, you know, to the UN as a whole from hmm. the implementation of this idea. I think there are actually a couple of risks to do with reputation. One is quite simply the minute you start handing over tasks to, to other partners, you know, you need a lot of oversight and you need stronger mechanisms to actually ensure they're doing their job. You know, uh, some of the, the issues that came up in the workshop were really about how do you make ensure the private sector implementers, NGO implementers will be accountable. I think this is a way to recognize that they're already operating in this space and actually bring them in into some kind of framework. Your point on, rep uh, on the other side of reputation is interesting because I think, you know, with those of us who often are in a position of defending the UN, I think we're quite scared at the moment of, of, of big you know, UN reform proposals because every time you open up the conversation, you risk damage, you know, people coming in who actually want to damage or dismantle the UN, you risk sort of focusing on what the UN does badly instead of what it does well. I think it's at a stage now where, you know, 
I often pull out this fact sheet, you know, all the things that the UN does, and it is usually about it feeds this many people, it vaccinates this many people, and so on. I find that that is having less and less currency at a time when the focus is so much on the politics of, of the system and the fact that the UN doesn't seem to be engaged in some of the big, big questions. Cyber governance is an obvious one, although I know that you know the Secretary General is doing something on that regard. So I'm not sure that this reputational bounce is really enough at the moment to stand the UN in good stead for, for many, many years. I think that by sharing some of the risks um, and bringing in partners, the UN will develop closer relationships with the people that it is ultimately serving. So it's not just a case of the UN didn't do something well. Actually, it's much more collective. At the moment, people don't know, you know, how do I really get in touch with the UN that's doing X, Y, and Z in my country or overseas? And I think if you're bringing in companies that they might know or NGOs that they might know as well as states and the UN, you have more entry points for engagement in that sense. So if I'm a person, I have hopefully some political input into how my government runs things. I can make my voice heard through that. If I'm a consumer, I can make my, you know, I have power in terms of how I engage with business. If I'm engaged with an NGO, I will have people I can talk to there. So I, I think it's really just about sharing the, the risks and making this a much more collective response. So it's not just about the UN fails, which unfortunately is more often the headline than the UN succeeds, but rather how are we collectively addressing challenges and helping the UN? It's just about trying to change up that conversation of them and us. So what happens now? Uh, you've won $600,000. Congratulations again. <laughs> what, where will that money go? Like what, what, how, what are your next steps to implementing this, this idea? So I'm still thinking about, um, uh, it, I think it's, it's, I should say um, this was just, this happened like a week ago. So yes, <laughs> you got time. no pressure. You have some time, but yeah. So, so, but, but what are your early thoughts now? So I think I'm very keen to look at the next stage of of the process. So, you know, I've had the benefit of, of many experts giving me feedback and telling me what's wrong and what needs to get looked at, at the proposal. So I'm now looking at doing this, you know, with my organization, UNA UK, and with partners that we worked for, uh, worked with uh, during the One for Seven Billion campaign and others that I met at the forum. There was quite a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people who were working on UN reform. And I'm hoping to build a coalition that takes forward some of the best ideas, but also just creates some of the political and public will I think we need for UN reform. I think the Secretary General's proposals are you know, really good and necessary and long overdue, but, you know, trying to get the public excited about a reorganization of the Department for Peacekeeping Operations and Department for Political Affairs, you know, it's, it's all quite technical. You know, when you start talking about the UN resident coordinator system, people don't really know what you're talking about. And I think ultimately, and this was, you know, part of my, I think, positive skepticism about the process is that it's not a lack of ideas that is preventing us from reforming the UN. It is political will. So 
I want to use the next six months to to drum up um, that support ahead of the the Paris Peace Forum that will be hosted by the the French president, and really just say you know that the global public has had enough that we've done our bit. We've come up with loads of ideas, uh, you know, that are eminently implementable, some of which are very aspirational. So it gives us an idea of where we, we can go with this. And now it's really about them taking it forward. So it's sort of a chance, as it were, for us to cast our, our collective veto and say, look, we've had enough of things not working well. You need to take some of these ideas forward now. How are you going to do it? And, and, and I imagine that the experience uh, from the One for Seven Billion campaign you know, would, would really inform this kind of process of building the political will to that end. Yes, I think I, I, I suspect, again, if we go out to people with some of the ideas, not just my own, uh, you know, some of the other winners and, and even the you know people who didn't make it, there's some brilliant ideas there. And I suspect we will find there is already a body of support amongst member states. Uh, we will be having some conversations with the, with the UK government here about that. And I think, you know, this is about just making sure we focus, uh, you know, our efforts on the biggest transformations we, you know, we can achieve but also just signal that we need a vision for for the UN that will you know see the organization through hopefully to its next next 70 years. Uh, well, Natalie, congratulations. Thank you so much for your time and I look forward to hopefully maybe seeing you in in Paris at the Peace Forum. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to try and rope you in. You'll be part of the the working group going going forward. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for your time and congrats. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Natalie. It was an interesting food for thought, and uh, I'll be looking forward to helping put that idea into practice. All right. We'll see you next time, and do visit globalchallenges.org to learn more about this idea and the other finalists and other ideas that were submitted as part of this prize competition. We'll see you later. Bye.